excited to be here with you guys. I can just tell you are leaning in and you are ready. I'm going to talk really fast because I've had a lot of caffeine. So if you can listen fast, this will work, okay? All right, I'm going to open up with my family because I need you to know a little bit about me. I have four sons. And so we're going to put a picture up of them. I believe they're all coming up. If not, that's just my shoulder. There we go. Okay. So I live with a lot of men. So my youngest son right there is in the front. His name is Arden. He is 20 years of age. And he leaves actually tomorrow for Hillsong, Sydney. He's going to go for a year of Bible college there. So we're so excited about that. And then behind him is my oldest son, Addison. He is 29 years of age. And then there is my husband of 33 years, John Bevere, who will be speaking tonight. He is my favorite minister, not because of how he preaches, but who he is in private. And then behind him is my second son, Austin. He is 26. And then my son, Alec, who is 24. And then my grandson, Asher. And I'm going to show you a picture of Asher a little bit closer. I think all grandchildren should be celebrated. Okay. He has a gouge on his face, and I picked this picture for a reason. I did all of the Hillsong Color Your World conferences last year. I did two weeks in Sydney, one week in Cape Town, one week in London. And when I came home, Asher came over, and he had this scratch on his face. And I am a half Sicilian grandmother. And so when somebody hurts my grandchildren, something inside of me gets upset. And I was like, Asher, who in the world did this to you? Do I need to go to daycare and have a talk with somebody? But before he could even answer me, I saw a hand go up. And it was my granddaughter, Sophia. Sophia had scratched Asher. Sophia is the first female born to my family in more than 50 years. I was the last one. She is fiercer than all of the boys put together. We expected a little butterfly to float into our world, but you know, there is a generation of daughters coming on the face of the earth right now that understand they are designed for a purpose and they are going to come alongside the men in strength and in fierceness, but they also need to be saved. One of the things uh, Sophia does is when I put her in her car seat, she begins to yell, I need Jesus! I need Jesus! And what she's actually asking for is for me to put on, you make me brave. But we need Sophia to get saved before she is brave, because right now she's just mean. And then I have another granddaughter. Her name is Lizzie. Uh, Yeah, everybody has a sweet reaction to Lizzie, and you should, because Lizzie is sweet. So I'm going to show all three of them together, and then you get a better image of what this looks like in real life. So I am a grandmother, and that's exciting, because grandmothers are understanding something that mothers don't understand. And that is something called perspective. I believe that grandmothers want something truly grand for the next generation. And so even though I might have a problem seeing small print, what I see in the distance is a glory uprising for the church of Jesus Christ. I believe we're going to enter days of sons and daughters and mothers and fathers standing on the face of the earth and releasing the words of heaven. I'm also going to show you two more pictures I'm going to show you something called the Tough Mudder. I don't know if you know what this is, but it is basically a special ops race. And one of my sons entered the Tough Mudder. And I have decided since I genetically produced him that I am a tough mother. 
I don't know if you are familiar with this, but this is for people that like to be electrocuted, swim through ice, and run for 10 miles at 12,000 feet above sea level. So I'm like, okay, I am genetically superior. If I had wanted to be in that race, I would have won it. And so last year, when I came home from Hillsong, my son picked me up from the airport. He had run in another race. It's called the Spartan Race. And I think we're going to show the picture of the Spartan Race. And I, I wanted to know, had we won? I was like, Alec, did we win the race? He was like, no, mom, you did not win this race. He said, we didn't win. He said, but I discovered something. It's actually more fun helping other people over obstacles than it is crossing the finish line alone. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you have a course to run. You have a race to run and we are not competing against one another. But I am here today to make sure that you cross that finish line. I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to give a couple of things away and I'm going to need some help here. So I have, what's your name again? Kayla. Kayla. Okay. So I'm going to give away a curriculum. So I want a leader. I want a leader here. Who traveled? What leader traveled the farthest? You have to be outside of Colorado. Where, okay. Where did you travel from? You need to be loud. What? Puerto Rico. Oh, okay, but do you speak English? Yes. Is that your first language? Okay, then I've got, I'll give you a Spanish, Girls with Swords. Okay, I need a curriculum. Somebody that traveled not quite as far as Puerto Rico, but I'll, I'll give you guys something from, from the U.S. that is a leader. Can you give this away to them? Find out, find out who wins. You got to give this to them. Just give it to them. I trust you. Okay, and then I'm going to also, and so that's the curriculum we're going to have out there. We believe that people find out who they are in the company of other people. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story because a lot of times women do not know how crucial they are to this mix with God. I think that guys know, hey, it's okay for us to be strong. It's okay for us to be bold. But the truth is that God needs strong sons and strong daughters. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story on something that I'm going to be preaching a teeny bit on. I'm actually mixing two things. But basically, I wrote a book called Lioness Arising. And uh, it was about women waking up and discovering who they were. And, you know, this is embarrassing. But sometimes my life is so busy that I do things as afterthoughts. And so my book was already out and published in five languages. And I'm driving in my car and I was like, okay, Jesus, um... I forgot to tell you, I published a book called Lioness Arising. I hope that's okay with you. I know that you're independent of time, so I can ask you something afterwards and you can work with me. And I'm like, I would just like a confirmation that that was all right. And so that night, I was in the throes of a school project with my youngest son. I had, you know, found out at 8 o'clock at night that he had a school project due the very next day. I was like, are you serious? I tore apart the three older boys' school projects, brought him the poster board. He was like, no, this is the wrong poster board. So then I braved a blizzard to go out and get the correct poster board. And I paid the other boys money to cut out pictures and to let him, you know, dictate his paper to them. And when I came home, all of this was happening in my house. When my husband did something he likes to do on a regular basis, he called me. Now, that's not bad. But what he actually does when he calls me is he puts me on the phone with 
random strangers. I have tried to tell him, I don't want to talk to these people. These people don't want to talk to me. I don't know if it's an exit strategy for John when he's in a conversation that he wants to be over. He just dials my phone and hands them to people. But my husband was like, hey, I have somebody I want to talk. You want you to talk to. And I said, absolutely not. I am in the throes of a school project. You don't understand this because you have never done this, John. But I need to be involved with this. And he's like, listen, the guy, you don't need to talk to him right now. I gave him your cell phone. He's going to call you back. So I was like, who does that to their wife? And so when the guy called me back, I tried to sound exhausted. He, I was like, hello? And he's like, is this, is this Lisa Bevere? I was like, yes. He said, well, your husband held up your book tonight, Lioness Arising. And he said... Lions are the best killers, but lionesses are the best hunters. And I said, well, of course he would say that. That's all he knows. He doesn't read my books. He said, well, I'm calling you to tell you why your book is important. He said, let me tell you what I do here at Fort Bragg. He said, I am in charge of special ops team. He said, I don't know if you know, but we are not winning the war in Afghanistan. I said, I actually do know that. He said, do you want to know why we are not winning the war? I said, yes. In the middle of my son's school project, I must know why we are not winning the war in Afghanistan. He said, well, one of the reasons we're not winning the war is we can't speak to the women. And he said, if you can't speak to the women, you can't flip the culture. And if you can't flip a culture, you can't win the war. He said, up until this point, we have been sending in special operative teams of men. He said, but now we're sending in special operative women and they're going to tell the Afghan women they have voice and value. They're going to tell them why democracy will serve their sons and daughters well. They're going to take care of their minor medical needs and deliver their babies. He said, and the name of this group is Team Lioness. They're about ready to be deployed. May I have a copy of your book for all of them? And so I got to outfit Team Lioness before it went out of Fort Bragg. Then I got to outfit Team Lioness before it went out of Camp Lejeune. Why am I telling you this? Because if the U.S. military understands that without the involvement of women, you will fight, but you will not win, that it is time that the Church of Jesus Christ understands that God has always made it about one man and one woman with one heart standing together. And that is a vision of promise. Whether we realize it or not, the church is Jesus' bride. And we are supposed to be one accord with our Lord. So I'm going to show you what the enemy is afraid of. I've got a picture of two lions. He is afraid that the men and the women will stand side by side, face to face. That they will remember that they are intimate allies and not enemies. And so to that end, I'm going to talk to you about some stuff. And, you know, you, you can go back to your seat. You're awesome. Okay, so basically, we're in a generation and a time that is shifting so quickly. And when I look at your generation, I have to be honest with you. I see nothing but promise. I'm not afraid for you. You were created for this time. But you need the strength. You need the tools and so when I wrote Lioness Arising, it was a wake-up call. And when I wrote Girls with Swords, it was a weapon. But I'm going to actually position you with something you're going to need to go forward. It's something that they have done all these studies. It is called grit. They have found out that people who have gritty behaviors or the grit factor 
will actually succeed more than people that are intelligent, more than people that are rich. The idea of people that have this tenacious, I will not quit, I will not be distracted, I will not be deterred. Those kind of people have the chutzpah that they need to make it. But if you are going to have a grit factor that is not just this world's grit factor, but a spiritual grit factor, then you're going to have to operate by faith. And you're going to have to know who you are, and you're going to have to know how God prepares you. So I'm going to open up with Hebrews 11:33. It says, through acts of faith, not thoughts of faith, through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms, made justice work, and took the promises for themselves. You have to lay hold of every promise in God's word. It will not just fall on your head. You need to be able to, when you hear a scripture or you're singing a song to understand that if something begins to stir inside of you, you say, that is for me. You need to take hold of whatever you need to be equipped for this day and this age. And what you need to be equipped for this day and age may be very different than what your parents needed. So you might have a little bit of wildness. You might have a little bit of fierceness to you, but that's okay. I need you to be dangerous, and I need you to be fully awake to this season. One of my favorite scriptures, and again, when I talk about things in the Bible that have a feminine term, I want you to think of it as a church, is Micah 4.13. It says, on your feet, daughter of Zion, be threshed of chaff, be refined of dross, for I am remaking you a people invincible. For a long time, we have been a people invisible. There's a lot of people that are just waiting for the rapture to come and they can disappear. But that is not what you were created for. You were created to rise up in these last days invincible. You are not created for anything you have seen. You are created for something more than you have ever seen with your natural eyes. There is something inside of you that says there is something more than you have ever seen. And that is why you would be here on a morning at the desperation conference after you stayed up really late. But this is a preparation process. And to kind of set this story up, I'm going to tell you a ridiculous story about me. I actually travel a lot to Australia. And I was going to actually Planet Shakers on this particular trip. And I don't know if they're kind of like, hey, we spent so much money to fly you down here. You're going to have to speak 75 times. But basically, when I landed, it was like, hey, we got a pre-leaders meeting before the leaders meeting before the lunch. And I mean, like at the end of my time there, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know if I was coming or going. What is my point with that? I want you to know I was vulnerable. I was exhausted. I don't do jet lag well. Some people do. I don't. And so basically the very last night that I was there, we all gathered at Pastor Sam Evans' house. It was all girls. It was all quiet. And I was sitting there and a woman came up to me and she said, I have been watching you all weekend. And I finally figured out who it is you remind me of. And I said, please don't say Paul Abdul, please don't say Paul Abdul. And she's like, no, 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 it's not an American Idol judge. She said, you remind me of the original Sarah Connor. And I went, wait a minute, wasn't she blonde? And she said, no, 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 it wasn't her hair. It was her buffness. My heart began to beat fast. You know, if you tell a woman who is over 50 that she is buff, she'll know it's a lie but she'll want to believe you. And I was like, oh, okay, 
Wow, I've never heard that before. I got on a jet plane. I flew home. I grabbed my son, Alexander. I said, Alexander, I need you to find me some pictures of Sarah Connor from Terminator 2 because I'm a Christian. I've never watched that movie. I'm like, can you just show me some pictures? Well, he did better than pictures. He sounds some video clips. And so I began to watch these video clips and my heart began to race again. Basically, I'll tell you what I saw. I saw Sarah Connor. I guess she was in some kind of like prison sanitarium or something. And she had taken the twin bed and she had put it up against the wall and she was doing pull-ups on the underside of her bed. And I asked why would she be doing this? And they explained to me that she understand that she needed to use a season of captivity to develop strength because she would not always be in prison. And she wanted to come out of that season in strength so that she could rescue her son. Then they had another image of her, and she's like cocking a gun with one arm. Well, I have a 16-point buck on the wall of my house that I dropped with one shot. And then there was another picture of her, and she's riding her Ducati, which looked like my black ninja. So now all of a sudden, I'm feeling spiritually connected with Sarah. I'm feeling skillfully connected with Sarah. And I made the leap of perhaps I was physically connected with Sarah. And I did something I had never done. I called Gold's Gym. I called Gold's Gym and I said, hey, I want that trainer that shaves his head. I don't know what his name is, but he looks really fierce. And they were like, okay. So the guy answers the phone. I'm like, hello, Robert. I know you don't know who I am, but I am possibly one training session away from Sarah Connor. And I am going to let you be my physical trainer. And so I'm going to come in. I'm going to meet you. And he, you know, he kind of was like, well, we're going to have to do an assessment first. And when he said that, I should have taken a deep breath and asked myself a couple questions like, have you ever done a pull-up, Lisa? And the answer would be, no, I actually haven't. The other question I should have asked was, was Sarah Connor maybe 20, in her 20s in that movie? And you're in your 50s? That would have been another important question, but I didn't. I made an appointment. I called to my boys. I'm like, hey guys, mom is going to the gym. Who wants to come with me? They were like, we will make you a clean pump-up mix. We are all coming to see this sign and wonder. So I walked into the gym. I was like bouncing my head. At that point, my boys are like scattering. They're like, we're acting like we don't know you now because you're acting like you can dance. When I made eye contact with Robert, I expected him to be a little bit more excited than he was when he saw me. He had a clipboard. He takes me into the center of Gold's Gym and he said, drop and give me 10 push-ups. And I said, wait, you mean the girl kind, right? He goes, drop and give me 10. I was like, wait, what? He said, stop stalling. I like began to panic. So I dropped and I gave Robert 10 horribly formed push-ups. I hadn't done them since high school. And then he said, get up. He said, now do 25 jumping jacks. I, the way he said it, I couldn't remember what a jumping jack was. I was like, do my hands touch at the top? He's like, do it. I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I didn't want him to say I was cheating. So I started clapping and my boys were like, uh-uh. Oh my gosh, look at our mother. She can't even do a jumping jack correctly. And I have to be honest with you, that was the best thing I did that morning. It went from bad to awful to ridiculous. And then Robert brought me to the cubicle to share the bad news with me. I already knew I had flunked the assessment, but he had one more test he was going to do. 
he handed me something that looked kind of like a Nintendo controller. And he said, I need you to put this out in your hands and just like hold it and push a button. It's going to measure your fat percentage. So I pushed it and it shot an electrical current through my body, measured my fat percentage. Robert was shocked by how high my fat percentage was. I was not as surprised as Robert. And I said, well, maybe I didn't hold it right. Or maybe I'm dehydrated from jet lag. So I did it again, and it went up a percentage point. At that point, Robert began to point out some larger sisters at the gym and explained to me that I was fatter than them. He said, you see that person? You have a higher fat percentage than her. You see that person? You have a higher fat percentage than her. Now, at this point, I've, I've just about had it. I mean, I'm humiliated. I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. And so I said, you need to stop it right now. I am not a lazy person. I am a busy person. He said, oh, I know that. He said, you're something we call skinny fat. What is that? He said, you're busy. And because you're busy, you burn muscle rather than build it. And he said, if you want to be strong, You can't be busy. You need to begin to be able to bear some weight. And that day when I left the gym, I thought, how much of the church is skinny fat? Oh yeah, we're busy. But when it comes to bearing some weight, to stand up under some pressure, we came. And if you think trainer Robert was mean, you should listen to trainer Jesus. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 3, says, I see right through your work. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Up on your feet. Take a deep breath. Maybe there's life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at all your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift you once had in your hands, the message you heard with your ears. Grasp it again and turn back to God. If you pull the covers back over your head and sleep on, oblivious to God, I'll return when you least expect it and break into your life like a thief in the night. Spiritual busyness does not build strength. And I bet a lot of you already know that Jesus values very different things than this world values. He doesn't value how many Facebook friends you have. He doesn't value how many Twitter followers or Instagram followers. He doesn't value how other people see you. He sees the real you. And you need to be very careful in this day of social media that you are not so busy listening to what everybody else says about you that you forget who you truly are. Jesus saw through the works of this church, the very next church. So in the book of Revelations, which is a book in the Bible, he saw right through them. He said, I know you inside and out and fight little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag I'm rich. I've got it made and I need nothing from anyone. It sounds like America. Oblivious that in fact, you are a pitiful blind beggar, threadbare and homeless. Here's what I want you to do. Buy gold from me. Gold that's been through the refiner's fire. Then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me. Clothes designed in heaven. You've gone around half naked long enough. And buy medicine for your eyes from me. 
so you can see, really see. I believe the younger generation has the ability to see some things that the older generation has lost sight of. But in your strength, you need our wisdom. And God wants to marry all of these things. But when you hear these two accounts, you might think, man, Jesus is just harsh. He's just mean. I thought he's like Mr. Shepherd Jesus. Well, why would he talk like that? Well, next verse, Revelation 3.19. The people I love, I call to account, prod and correct and guide so that they will live life at their best. Up on your feet then, about face, and run after God. God is prodding you guys, not because he is disappointed, but because he said there is something so much more in you than you have ever imagined. There is something so much more in you than this world has seen. And I need you to move beyond your ability, your limits, into what I have put in your heart. He is prodding us. He is correcting us so that we can live life at our best. Which brings us actually back to where we began. Micah 4.10 says, God will give you new life again. He'll redeem you from your enemies. But for right now, they're ganged up against you. I don't know if you've seen what's been going on in this culture right now, but there are many godless people saying to the church, kick her when she's down. They think we just lost something. Well, you know, God didn't fall off the throne. God is God. He was not taken surprised by everything, but I do think it needs to be a wake-up call for us. And it says, these blasphemers have no idea what God is thinking and doing in this. They don't know that this is the making of God's people, that they are wheat being threshed and gold being refined. Hardship is what refines you. Hardship is when you find out what you are made of. Hardship is when you find out where you are strong and where you are weak. And we are a people to whom much has been given. And when much has been given to us, much is required of us. And most people think of that as a grumpy thing. I don't want you to think about that as a grumpy thing. I want you to think about it as an entrustment. I want you to take it as God believes that there is something inside of me that he has given me so much. But because we live in this day and time, the enemy in our nation acts very different than he does in other nations. You go over to other nations, they're beheading Christians. One of our on-site people in the Middle East was just killed on purpose by a, a, a shelling attack. They couldn't even recover his body because it was in pieces. What does ISIS call us? What do they call us? Does anybody know what they call us? They don't call us Christians. What do they call us? They call us people of the cross. And sometimes I think ISIS remembers who we are more than we remember who we are. We are not Christians. It is not some club. We are people of the cross. And the cross represents our ultimate strength and our ultimate power. And so we need to remember what actually has been entrusted to us. And if God needs to use our enemies to remind us of who we are, then so be it. In the U.S. culture, the enemy's number one goal is to distract you. He will distract you with entertainment. He will distract you with the unreal and the unimportant. If he can't distract you, 
then what he will do, like if, if any of you happen to say, like while I'm talking, wait a minute, I feel like something is stirring inside of me, I just might be a hero. He'll say, excuse me, who do you think you are? He'll try to diminish you. He'll try to say, oh, you're, wait, I know who your parents are. I know who you have been in the past. Well, if you heard my opening, it is not about who you've been in the past. Because every single attack on your life up until now is actually about who you might be in the future. Not who you have been in the past. The enemy is always attacking who you might be. He really doesn't care about who you have been. So you need to get that mindset that if you have gone through hell, that there is something inside of you that he is afraid of. And so you need to get a little bit of an attitude of what is so frightening about me that the enemy distracts and diminishes God's assignment on my life. And then if he can't distract or diminish, he divides. Oh, the church has been divided for so long. We have had the men on one side, the women on the other side, the Baptists on one side, the assembly of God on the other side. We need to stop it. We'll never come into the unity of doctrine. But we will come into the unity of faith. And all of us have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we are brothers and sisters. And we need to stop being divided. And if he can't distract, diminish, or divide, he just destroys. Which is what we're seeing happen in the Middle East. It's what we're seeing happen with so many women right now. There are 163 million women missing off the globe right now. It's something called gender side. See, the enemy knows that Jesus is coming back for a bride. Before the birth of Moses and before the birth of Jesus, he was killing the baby boys. Now he's killing the baby girls because it's about the women now. He doesn't want the women to come alongside the men and lend their strength and lend their voice and remember who they are. So he is causing division. He is causing distraction. He is causing uh, diminishing and he is causing death. Doesn't happen here. Let me just tell you something. What happens over there? We should feel over here because we are all one. And what we tolerate for others will come into our own life if we are not careful. Exodus 15, 3 says, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Your father is a warrior. He's not a part-time warrior and a part-time father. He is a man of war. He's not enlisted for a season. He is a man of war. And if you are a son and a daughter of the Most High God, then this is a personal battle. And you need to fight until every enemy has been put under his feet. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. The last one of those being death. So I want to talk to you about what you have in your hand. You know, I, I um, have God talk to me a lot at 2 a.m. in the morning. That's not my go-to choice. That's not my first choice for when you should talk to me, but he seems to catch me as I'm falling asleep or waking up and whisper things to me. And you know what? I need, I need you to hear this. God actually wants to talk to you more than you want to hear from him. So if you're not making room to hear from him, don't be surprised if you don't hear from him. But I will say, if you give him permission to speak to you in the night watches, if you give him permission to speak to you first thing in the morning, sometimes you'll wake up and you'll hear a song 
a song in your spirit, you need to begin to sing it. Sometimes you'll wake up in the morning, you'll hear a scripture, you need to write it down. You need to seize those moments. But at 2 a.m. in the morning, one particular morning, I was up really late, had been the caregiver for my mom for six weeks. She'd had a stroke, lost the movement on her left side of her body. So I was up late every night, early every morning. One night, as I was just falling asleep, I heard the Holy Spirit ask me this question. He said, Lisa, what does it mean to carry your cross? Now, I have written like 12 books. I traveled the world as a speaker of Christian things. And I said, okay, it means to lay down my life. And he was like, no, that is step one. We're going to put Matthew 16, 24 up so you can see this. And I think we're pretty all sure that Matthew 16, 24 is Christianity 101. Do we all agree? It says, then Jesus told his disciples. Do you know everybody here is a disciple? Okay, it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or not, a man or woman, this is gender neutral, you are a disciple. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so he said, no. He said, lay down your life is step one, deny yourself. And so I said, okay, uh, it means to sacrifice my way. He said, again, Lisa, that is step one. And he said, it's an order not an ornament. Why can't you answer me? I remember thinking, all right, I'm not going to get this right, but that didn't stop the questions. He said to me, where do you keep your cross, Lisa? How do you know when you're carrying it? How do you know when you've left it at home? What does it weigh? At that point, I just sat up in my bed and I said, I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea. And he's like, exactly. And he said, now go get your list. Earlier that day, I had drawn on the deep well of wisdom of Twitter and Facebook, and I had asked, what one word does the cross mean to you? I got over 400 responses. They broke down to 36 categories. I was actually looking for a word that nobody gave me. I went out into John's office, got my list, began to write it down, realized, wait, I can't read this, typed it into my iPad. And when I got to the very last word, I heard the Holy Spirit say, behold the cross. They're going to put up that image for you. It is all of these different words. And this is what Jesus said to me. He said, all that the cross provided for you is what you carry out into your everyday, ordinary world. And you do it by following me. I was looking for the word that's on the bottom there. I was looking for the word weapon because there is no greater weapon than a life laid down. And we need to be a people who are willing to give all if that is what is necessary. I had a realization that the cross actually looks like a sword with a point in the ground. Ephesians tells us that through the cross, God put to death the enmity that was between heaven and earth. Everything that the cross has provided for you and me is what we should actually be laying hold of in our life. But when you only preach a portion of the cross's benefits, you only see a portion of the cross's power. 
But we're living in a day and an age where we must preach all of the gospel, even the things that we do not understand, because God is not going to give us a map when he has spoken a mystery. And we must be a people who are willing to look up to go forward. So I want to talk to you about what it might look like for you to begin to carry your cross. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. This is in the message version, it says. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you. That's the cross. Embracing all that God has done for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. You know why he says quickly? Because so many times God will drop something to you. And if you don't do it quickly, you begin to second guess it. You begin to doubt it. Maybe that wasn't God. Maybe God didn't tell me to give that person $5. Maybe God didn't tell me to go over there and share Jesus with somebody. Quickly. I remember Arden telling me a story from when he was in high school. He's, he told me this story. He said, um, there was this girl that nobody liked. And he said, and I, he said she, was, she was just weird. He said she was just weird, Mom. And she was really dark. And he said, but I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to talk to her. And he's like, I, you know, I'm, again, can we just be really honest? He was like, first of all, I, if I talk to her, I'm worried she's going to think I'm flirting with her. Or she'll think I like her and that it'll be misinterpreted. Or other people will think that, like, I'm BFFs with her. And he, and he heard the Holy Spirit say, who do you serve? Man or me? I told you to talk to her. So he said, all right, I'm, I'm going to go talk to her. So he, he went over. And he talked to this girl, and he just said something nice to her. It wasn't massive. It wasn't deep. It wasn't, Jesus loves you and you're going to hell. It wasn't anything weird. It was just something kind. And when Arden talked to her, she burst into tears, and she said, I said, God, if you're real, and you don't want me to kill myself tonight, have one person be kind to me today. Have just one person be kind there might be just one person that needs you to be kind to them. It says, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what God wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So I kind of want to locate what you carry on your life. I don't know how many of you would know my background at all, but basically 50 years ago, when I was five years of age, I lost an eye to cancer. This eye right here is plastic. I lived all of my elementary days, all of my junior high days, all of my high school and college days, hiding, face down, afraid, never wanting anybody to notice that I might have one eye. Why? Because kids are mean. I grew up being called Cyclops. I grew up being called one eye. And I carried myself like a handicapped one-eyed person. 
always the victim, always hiding. I was never a cheerleader. This, doing this, would have been akin to my greatest nightmare. When I was in high school, you had to take either speech or debate to graduate. I was like, I am not getting up in front of people and arguing. It's going to be awkward enough to get up in front of people. So I'm going to just do the speech class. I remember preparing, over-preparing, had the little three-by-five cards, get up to speak, and one of the boys in the back of my class says, what's wrong, Cyclops? Just mouthed it, and I froze. And the teacher was like, if you want to go out of the room and come back in, you can. So I went out of the room, came back in, and there was laughing, and they were, like, making faces and covering one eye. And all of a sudden, I ran out of the room, in the guidance counselor, and I said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I cannot do speech. It is impossible for me. I have one eye. And they said, you know what? You're right. You're right. You're handicapped. You should never be made to get up in front of people. I said, thank you. They said, we're going to waive the requirement for speech for you. I said, awesome. And then they, I said, now there's another class I'm having a really hard time in. And they said, what's that? I said, typing. Typing is impossible for me. Back then, we had a typewriter in front of us, and we had to look to their side. I was like, are my hands on the case? I couldn't even see my hands. You people are not even existing in these two rows. I only see here and here because I have limited lines of sight. They said, you'll never be typing things for a living, will you? I'm like, never. They said, well, you could probably pay other people to type your papers in college. I said, I can So the two things, speech and typing, that I got out of at 15, I thought, I am so free. God was laughing. He's like, look at her. The two areas that she's afraid of, I'm going to make her face one day. Because, see, God understands that when you face what you fear, you become fearless. And so God will intentionally position your life To face off with that one thing that you are so afraid of. And then he will bring it through. See, God does not anoint the areas of your life where you are strong and see him as unnecessary. God anoints the areas of your life where you are weak so he can show himself strong. Second Timothy, verses 1, 6 through 7. This is why I remind you. I'm reminding you this because there's something on your life. This is why I remind you to fan into a flame the spiritual gift God gave you. That I, when I laid hands on you, for God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You know that they said that Jesus was different than all the Pharisees. You know why? Because he spoke as one who had authority. He didn't even mean he said different things, but he actually knew. He actually had lived what he said. And so many people study the Bible. They know about the word of God, but there's an area on your life that you carry the word of God because you don't know about it. You know him in that area. So I want to locate that area because that is an area that you carry the anointing of God in your life in. I'm going to ask a question. Who here has known Jesus as healer? If you have known Jesus as healer, I need you to stand to your feet right now. If you've known Jesus as healer, awesome. Jesus as healer, 
Why do we only preach him as Savior? Are we trying to protect his reputation? Well, what if people don't get healed? Well, what if they do? Again, I told to you that if we don't preach all that he is, he does not come on the scene. Who here has known Jesus as the friend that sticks closer to it than a brother? Stand to your feet right now. Who here has known him as the Prince of Peace? Who here has known him as wisdom and counsel? When you didn't have any way or direction, he whispered something to you. Who here has known him as Lord and Savior? Who here has known him as the anointed God most high? I need you to stand on your feet. Look around this room. Look around in this room. Whatever he has been to you, he wants to be to others. You carry the anointing of the Holy One. You carry something on your life. And it is time that you make room for it. So we're going to pray a simple prayer. I want you to lift up your hands. And I want you to say after me. Say, Heavenly Father. May all that the cross purchased for me gain full expression in my life. I am ready for signs and wonders and miracles. I am tired of being busy. I am ready to be buff. I will stand up under pressure. I will build some muscle. You can come to me when you need somebody to step up and not step back. Now I'm going to pray over you. You are the generation that will see up close what other generations have only seen in the distance. You will speak out loud what the generations before only dared to whisper. You will lay hold of with your hands what we only handled in prayer. You are for signs and wonders and miracles. You are not for death and destruction. All that God lays in your heart, do it with fierce joy, with strength, with faith. You are heroes destined to be remade into a people invincible in Jesus' name. And everybody agrees, say amen and amen. I'm going to close with this scripture. I'm going to close with this scripture. I want you to see this as I say this. Things are changing. I don't know if you see this blade. It looks like a flame. The flame blade is what was turning all the different directions in the book of Genesis on its own, keeping them out of the Garden of Eden. But when we begin to worship, the atmosphere changes. And this actually looks like a sound wave. And we begin to sing swords into the atmosphere. We begin to sing the word of God over our lives. We are not people that use swords to kill people. We use the word of God to set people free, not beat them up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach a scripture over you. Zechariah 9, 12 through 13, it says, Come home, hope-filled prisoners. You're not going home the same way you came. You're going home a prisoner of hope. This very day, I am declaring a double bonus over you. Everything you lost returned twice over. Judah is now my weapon. The bow I'll pull, setting Ephraim as an arrow to the string. I'll wake your sons, O Zion, to counter your sons, O Greece. From now on, people are my swords. 
you are a sword in God's hand to set captives free. Choose to live your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.